Lord, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We ask you to show us what you would want us to learn about obedience through this chapter and ask you to guide and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Jonah, chapter 3. We had this uh, book starting out with Jonah hearing from God to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was the hated enemy of Israel. Uh, We said that it would be like us being told to go to China or something to... You know, God's going to destroy them, and we go, yeah, well, be, be my guest, God. I'd be happy to you. All right, so that's kind of Jonah's mindset, which is why he probably runs away from, from God. He's probably going, well, God, I want you to destroy them. You know, uh, if you punish me, that's great. Israel's protected. You know, so he runs away. God sends a storm. He gets thrown into the, into the sea. He gets swallowed by a great fish, and inside the great fish, he prays and repents. And we ended with, uh, with his chapter 2 with him being vomited up on dry land, which is kind of an interesting thing in and of itself. First off, he's swallowed by a big fish rather than being chewed up by a big fish. Then the big fish spews him out on dry land, which means that fish beached itself to spit him out of, the, out of himself. So this is a pretty... There's, you know, lots of little places where people kind of pick this story apart, you know, saying, well, it can't be real because. Well, this is God's story. He prepared this fish specially for this event. And whether that fish died on, uh, died on the dry land when he spit Mo, uh, Moses, Jonah up, or if he rolled back into the sea, we don't know. It doesn't say. God didn't care about the fish after that. The fish had done its job. And God was done with it. He never told, tells us what happens. And this is something for even us as Christians. When we get the job God has assigned us to do, we may just die and go to heaven because our assignment is over. And that's not the no worst thing that can happen to us. As a matter of fact, that's a great thing. But isn't that true on a lot of the stories in the Bible that he'll tell you the main thing, but then he won't tell you the after? Doesn't tell you the details or the after. Yeah, all over the Bible, God does that. You know, here's the main story. We're not going to tell you what happened after or, or to these other minor characters. They just show up. And it's not uncommon if you read a book. A lot of times a minor character will show up and then do their part of the story. And then you go, what happened to, so, you know, what happened to so-and-so in the story? I don't know. They just they did their part and they're no longer needed. All right? The fish was no longer needed after it got Jonah back to to land and we don't know anything about this fish after that and it's not uncommon when we get done with God's part of the, the part of the story that God wants us to do you know, we'll just be kind of done <laughs> you know, uh, so Jonah chapter 3 starting at verse 1 and the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time saying arise go into Nineveh that great city and preach unto it preaching what that I bid you So Jonah arose and went into Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey and cried and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. All right, that's the end of our first paragraph. We're going to stop there for just a moment. All right, Jonah has just been spit up out out of the fish, and God gives him a second time. Jonah, go to Nineveh. And this time he listens. All right. I don't imagine that he really had much choice. I mean, he's probably thinking, what will God do to me next time if I don't obey? 
And I don't know if you've ever been there, like, what, is God, what will God do next time if I don't do what he's told me to do? I've been there. I was more stubborn than Jonah. I fought for a long time. Uh, but, you know, Jonah was told, go. And the first time he told God, no, and tried to run out of God's, you know, out of the presence of God, which we, we talked a lot about that that first week. You can't get out of God's presence. Jonah knew that he couldn't get out of God's presence, yet he tried to run out of God's presence. And the second time, he very wisely is going to say yes. And God repeats, arise, go into Nineveh, that great city, or that large city, or important city. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. All right? The Assyrian Empire at this point in time is conquering everybody that it, that it sees. All right, so this is a pretty big deal. This is the enemy. They keep attacking Israel. So and from Jonah's mindset, you know, he goes, I really believe that he said, well, God, you can do whatever you want to me, but I'm just, go ahead and destroy Nineveh because I, don't, I want to protect my people. He might not have been quite that bold, and usually we aren't that bold either. God tells us to do something, and you know, we don't come right out and say it, but when we look at what we do and what we say, aren't we saying just that? You know, God, I can get out of your presence. You know, I'm going to go over here where you're not looking, and I'm going to do this sin over here. Uh, I, because temporarily I'm gone, I've, gone, I've gotten amnesia and don't think that you're omnipresent. All right? Uh, but we do this all the time. We act in ways that are contrary to what God tells us. He says he's everywhere present, and we'll try to go someplace where God isn't. You know, we'll go to the party where somehow God didn't go to the party where, every, where all the sin is going to happen and enjoy the, enjoy the drinking and whatever else goes on at the party that I'm at and somehow think that God's not watching me in the middle, in the middle of it all, forgetting that he's there no matter what. Now, if I was to ask you in the middle of the party, is God here? You go, oh, yeah, I believe he's here. But your actions are saying, no, he's not here. All right? So this is what Jonah did. Now Jonah said, go and, te- and preach. Declare to them what I have told you to declare to them. And this is kind of an interesting thing. And it says, Jonah arose. This time, he is going to be obedient. Last time, he arose and went to tried to go to Tarshish. This time he's arising to go to Nineveh. And Nineveh is a very large city for, the, for that particular time. It says that it's an exceedingly great city of three days journey. Now there is debate on whether this is, it takes three days to go through the center of it or three days to go around it. Either way, it's a large city. All right. It has, we're going to find out in the last part of the, uh, last part of the book, 120,000 people living in it. All right, that's a pretty good-sized town even in our day, you know, not compared to some of our big cities, but it's a good-sized small city, small, small place. Back in that day, it was a very large city, and it is the center. It is the, it is the capital of Assyria, and he is told, go there. Now, I think that it's three days cross, but I've seen a lot, of the, a lot of the commentaries say that it was three days around. I don't care how it is. Three days around would still be a pretty big city. Uh, if it's three days across, that's a really big city, something that takes three days to go through. And he, go, he is sent there, and it says, Jonah entered the city a full day's journey. 
So whatever it took, however far he went, and this is, this is why I think it's probably three days across, but by the same token, a three-day journey would probably take you a day and a half probably to go through on a straight diagonal line. And with the reaction, I kind of understand the three days around because the city is going to respond. And it's hard to think that the city responds when he only goes one-third of the way through the city. So I don't know. I'm not going to make, you know, nobody really knows what that is. There's no clear, uh, the commentaries that will say three days around say that usually in that time period they talked about the circumference, how long it took you to walk around the city rather than through. Again, there's not, that's not strong evidence. Yeah. Uh, but I do think that he had to get most of the way through the city for the city to respond the way they're going to. Because they're going to repent. And I can't really imagine if he went one-third of the city and all of a sudden everybody in the whole city decided we're going we're to repent. <laughs> so in one side, I do kind of understand that it's a, a three-day journey around the city. I'm not going to take a hard stand either way. I don't really care. It's a big city. <laughs> all right. And he's gone one day's journey into it. And his message is very simple. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He's not even telling them to repent. And I have this feeling that there was no love in his voice. This wasn't repent because God's going to destroy you thing. It's going to be, I can almost hear the glee in his throat, in his thing. You know, you know 40 days and Nineveh is going to be destroyed. And I can almost hear the smile in his voice, the excitement in his voice. This city is going to be destroyed. And I'm looking forward to it. He is giving everything that a pastor is not supposed to do when he's trying to win people. All right? You're supposed to have loving care for the people. You know, your sin is going to send you to hell, and you're not saying it with a joyful, I'm looking forward to you going there. You're supposed to be getting that sorrow, that real hard, you know, this is a really bad thing. I do not believe any of that was in Jonah. I could be wrong, but I, you look at his message, and it says, yet 40 days, and Nineveh is going to be overthrown or destroyed. You know, he doesn't say repent. He doesn't say God, God's got mercy for you if you repent. He says God's going to destroy you this, this town. And I believe it was kind of that hard. Yeah, I believe he was yelling it out. God's going to destroy you 40 days and you're going to be gone. You know, you're going to be gone and I'm looking forward to you being gone. All right? You know, you're out. You're out of here. You know, you're not going to attack my country anymore. Because God's going to destroy you in 40 days. And I, I just find that, you know, you look at what he said, and I do believe it came, that he was saying it harshly. He had no love for Nineveh. He had no love for, for Assyria. Well, but you know, that fish is probably what made this announcement so, so bold because this guy has been in the belly, the digestive tract of a fish for three days. The acid in that fish probably bleached his skin pretty good. Imagine what he like. Oh, I'm sure he didn't smell good because it didn't say that he took a shower or a bath. <laughs> he got spit up on dry land and he went. He looks like a ghost. He, you know, and you've got to think, if he is a Middle Easterner who's been in the belly of a fish and probably has minor burns across his body and, and has been bleached. All right. Huh? White bleached. Because he's been in acid. Okay. He's been in acid for a while, so technically not bleached. He's acid burned. The end result is going to be the same. 
the same end result's going to be the same. Uh, his, maybe he's all red because of the acid burns. Who knows? He's not looking good. <laughs> and I never even thought about it, but that is true. Mm-hmm. He is suffering from pain from having been in the belly of the fish for a while. So he's going to be ultra sensitive to the sunshine that is going to talk about in the fourth chapter that he's going to sit out in the this, in this sun and God's going to send a blazing heat on him. So he's going to be ultra sensitive to that. And he says, I might as well die. And that may be exactly why. He may feel like I'm dying anyway. God, I'm dying anyway. You should have killed me in that fish and then this, this, this town would be destroyed. All right. Uh, so he's going in with the wrong attitude toward this. You can see it in his words. 40 days and you guys are going to be destroyed and I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to go sit up there on that hill and I'm going to watch God destroy you. Uh, uh, But the people respond very different than you would have expected. With that kind of message, you would have probably thought they would have grabbed hold of him and thrown him out of town. All right? But something about the Holy Spirit worked on their hearts. Even though his words are wrong, his attitude is wrong, God is going to work on their hearts. Why do I bring this up? How many times have you been afraid to witness because you might say the wrong thing? You might do the wrong thing. You know what? It really doesn't matter. Open your mouth and speak. God is the one that changes hearts anyway. This message is not a message that's going to change people's hearts and the entire town is going to repent. All right? And his message is not one for repentance. He didn't even tell them to repent. Yeah, he just said, you're going to be destroyed. And I, like I said, I can hear the glee in his, in his voice. But there, there was something about him that they knew where he was from. Now, how they knew, I don't know, with this, the pattern of his speech. You know, uh, they knew that, knew that he served, was a Jew and served God, knew who the God of the Jews are. And remember, everybody in that neighborhood, neighborhood knows who the God of the Jews are. He's the one that destroyed Egypt. He's the one that split the Red Sea. He's the one that destroyed the Canaanites, uh, uh, Zebusites and Hergagites and all those otherites in, in that land. You know, he destroyed all of those people and kicked them out. And everywhere they've gone, they've been victorious. And God has, God has struck hundreds of thousands of people dead in a single night. And, you know, they know all these stories about the God of Israel. So how did they know he was, a, you know, that he was from Israel? Something to do with his speech, something. Maybe when he had to sign in at the gate, you know, get past the gate guards, he goes, I'm, I'm a prophet from Jerusalem. And that news went ahead of him. We don't know exactly why, but they know that this man represents God. And they know that this God does things. He has destroyed nations. He has destroyed armies. He has protected his people. And why everybody kept going against him, I don't know. They would forget until, until somebody reminded them of the history. But here they are, and his message is, repent. Yeah, no, no, not even repent. In 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. Yeah. Now, I don't know about that message. I don't know that that message would get me to repent. All right? Yet, that's exactly what happens. So in verse 5, So the people of Nineveh, Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by decree 
of the king and of his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from his violence that is in their hearts. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? All right. The king and the people hear this message. It's quite an interesting you know, message. You know, you're going to be destroyed. And the king and the people decide to go into a fast. Not eat. Why? Because they know that God's, God's deserve reverence and that by not eating, you're turning your attention on to God. And he says, we're going to go, we're going to do a fast. And the king adds to it. He says, put on sackcloth, which is your mourning garments, and don't eat. And he goes really far. He goes, don't even let your flocks eat. And I've never really seen anybody put sackcloth on their animals. <laughs> All right. But he is doing everything he can think of to try to appease a God that he doesn't know. All right. And this is the interesting thing. They don't know the God of the Jews. They know how powerful he is from his stories. They know what he's done to Egypt. He knows what he's done to all the enemies of them. They know that they've had a hard time conquering them. Every time they go, they've been rebuffed. All through the northern kingdom, they had a long time where they couldn't get them and finally took them. They have not been able to take Jerusalem yet. They keep getting rebuffed. And so they're looking at it. These guys have a God that is powerful. They have a God that puts the other gods to shame. And this is the thing that they know about the God of Israel. Now, they always hope that their God might get stronger somehow, and we don't understand. I can't even understand, being not, being not a polytheist person, I don't understand how you could believe that your God gets stronger or weaker over time. But when you read the mythologies, the, the Greek mythologies, Roman mythology, the Norse mythology, the gods are always fighting with each other. All right? They're all gods, they all fight with each other, and sometime one comes on top, and the other time another one comes on top. Uh, you know, you've got Zeus, the number one god, but even, even the gods are always trying to take his place down. Enough of them get together, to they, they hope to take him down. Uh, and this is the idea that they have. They don't understand one god who is god, who's all-powerful, who can't be defeated. We have a hard time, but if you've ever read Greek mythology, you see that all the time. You see them fighting amongst each other, trying to cause problems for each other. And when you look at them, all they are is human beings with very strong power, uh, which means they can die. They can, you know, maybe not die, but they can be hurt. They can, they can be knocked down. Uh, you know, they can be, you know, disciplined. You know, this is the hard part. And, and this king says, okay, I know, I know who this God of Judah, Israel is. Now, we've heard his, his, uh, the stories about him. We've heard the destruction of Jerusalem. We've heard, because remember, when the spies came in to, when Joshua sends the spies in, what does Rahab tell to them? Forty years later, he says, we're afraid of your God because we have heard what he did to Israel. We have heard what he did to the Red Sea. We have heard what he did to the king of Moab and the king of Ammon. We've heard all the all that your God has done, and we don't, we're terrified 
of your God. Didn't keep them from attacking, <laughs> attacking them, but they were still terrified of the God. In the book of Joshua, they have victory up in the mountains and they, they get ready to come down and they go, well, you know, he was the God of the mountains, but we've got the God of the valley. He could, you know, he could, the God of the mountains can't take us in our, in our, you know, take our God of the valley. You know, uh, and of course God won that battle as well. And so we have Nineveh, the king of Nineveh, hearing this. Now he doesn't worship this God. He is worshiping any number of other gods of Nineveh, but he does not worship God, Jehovah, the God of Israel, but he recognized that that God is powerful. That God has sent a prophet into his town where his God reigns, and he wasn't struck dead by their, by their God to keep him from speaking. All right? So this is a, one step, okay? He is in their capital with their God who couldn't keep the prophet out of his town. And he's saying, my God is going to destroy your town. All right? So I'm trying to put the mindset in here for us. We, we, don't, we have trouble with this whole idea of multiple gods and worshiping a whole bunch of different gods and a god of fertility, a god of power, a god of this, a god of that, a god of everything, and worshiping whichever one I, I need at the moment. And so they have no problem turning to this god. He's just another god in their mindset, but he's a powerful god. And again, you've got to think. The prophet of this god walked into their city with the headquarter of their temple of their god and didn't get struck dead. That's a big deal to them. You know, this god has actually sent somebody in there and protect him enough to make proclamation that this city is going to be destroyed. They probably remember what happened to Dagon and, and the Philistines and the temp, when, the, when the Ark of the Covenant, when it was put in the Temple of Dagon. Do you remember the story that you know, Dagon, the first time, fell down in front of the, in front of the Ark of the Covenant? So that, that day they put Dagon back up and bolted him, bolted him back into place. And the next day he fell down and his hands were in one place, his legs were in another place, and his head was in another place. They couldn't nail him back up. All right, Dagon was bowing before the altar, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant. They probably knew that story. You know, this God, even placed in the temple of a God, made that God bow down. All right, these are the stories they knew. They knew the story of Gideon with his 300 men destroying 100,000 men. They understood, those, they, they knew that. They understood the battle with Deborah and Borak and, and the entire army that they shouldn't be able to beat, full of chariots, defeated. They knew all of these stories. They knew that Hezekiah has a battle, that uh, Jehoshaphat, excuse me, has a battle where God kills the enemy, enemy ahead of them with just singers leading the army. And the army kills themselves. They know these stories. They know that this God is victorious. Now on the flip side, they know that God has brought judgment on his people. So they're hoping, you know, in their aspect, it's not God bringing judgment on them, it's their God being more powerful than, than their God. They don't realize that it's God's judgment on his people that has allowed them to be victorious over his people. So their perspective is, their God loses a battle once in a while. But boy, does he come back when he comes back. All right? And so all of this is going on. This, this is their mindset as, as Jonah's walking through the town saying, you guys are going to be destroyed. 
You guys are being destroyed. In 40 days, you're going to be destroyed. And so they go and they declare, declare a fast. That means not eating and focusing on God. So do you think that they knew that that's what they were supposed to do to God? Or is that what they did to their... Probably almost every religion to, to really honor your God, you fast. Remember, Satan creates lies for everything and his lies are based on truth. So God says, fasting for me is good. You're de denying yourself and focusing on me. Satan has taken that and applied that to his other false religions. All right, sacrificial system. Where did the sacrificial system come into place? Way back in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned and were hiding and covering themselves with fig leaves, what did God do? He, he killed animals and made skin coverings for them. And I'm sure at that time he taught them that with the shedding of blood is the covering of sin because from that point on we have the sacrificial system in place. And this is used through the Jews, through every other religion. You've got to sacrifice something important to you to get forgiveness of your sins, to cover your sins, to show your dedication to the God. So fasting is a way to show dedication. And we talked a couple weeks ago in the Sunday morning service because Jesus was asked, why do your disciples not fast? And Jesus says, well, you can't make them fast while the bridegroom is at the party. You know, he goes, but there will be a time when they will fast. That means that they don't eat. They pay attention to, to God. You substitute those times and you would have eaten and you go into prayer and you go into a time of reading the Bible and focusing on God and s separate yourself from your food. And it, it helps you to focus. And it really does. Fasting is a good way to focus on God after the first day or two when you're starving. Uh, you know, after the first three or four days on a fast, you don't really feel the hunger pains anywhere because your body finally decides, well, you're not feeding me. I'm going to quit reminding you that I'm hungry until you start starving to death. And literally, I mean starving to death. You get to up around 35, 40 days, then your body is really going to complain. Uh, feed me because I am... <laughs> dying. When Jesus fasted for 40 days and then Satan came and attacked him, he was at his physical weakest point. The body can only go about 40 days without food. And that's when Satan attacked Jesus with the big, big temptations in the wilderness. And so fasting is a good thing. It shows God you're following him and you can focus on God. And I recommend you fast once in a while have a reason to fast. Don't just decide, you know, a lot of people do it for health and supposedly it's good to fast one day a week anyway for health purposes. And I'm not, I'm not saying do it for health purposes. I'm saying do it to focus on God and say, okay, God, my body's telling me I'm hungry, but I am going to focus on you for this period of time. Is it okay? Because I fast a lot and I fast because I want to honor God. Yeah. I would say focus on God, focus on honoring God. Don't worry about trying to prove anything. Yeah. Because the Pharisees and scribes, they fasted at least once a week, every week as a, as a show. You know, we're going we're gonna to fast. We're going to fast for God. God, look, look at us. And this is why we're told by Jesus, he says, when you fast, don't tell people, don't, 
don't make it look like you fast. Because the Pharisees would go along and sad faces, oh, I'm so hungry, I haven't been eating all day. And they'd make sure everybody knew that they were fasting. Okay? It was a show. It really wasn't aimed at God. It was a show. So if you are going to fast, Jesus said, anoint your head, look good, you know, don't, don't make it look like you're fasting. Don't, you know, don't really even let people know that you're fasting. Because who are you fasting for? You're fasting for God, not for the everybody. Oh, wow, how long, how long have you been fasting? Oh, you're doing so good. Now, if we're doing it for that kind of reason, we're doing it for the wrong reason. These people are going before God, and they're fasting. They're putting on sackcloth. And if you don't know what sackcloth is, think burlap sacks. Very itchy, very rough, very coarse. And the king took off his fine robes and he put on burlap sack and was trying to show God, I'm willing to go through uh, hardship. I'm willing to be uncomfortable. Listen to me. All right. And so all the people are doing this. And the king proclaimed and published throughout the land, all right, well, most of you are doing this, but now I'm commanding you to go into a fast. And he also goes into saying, no, don't eat or drink any, any liquid either. So he is, he, is complete, he is going for a complete fast. He wants God to know that they are serious about honoring him. And he doesn't know that this is going to work. He doesn't know this God. He doesn't know how to make a sacrifice to this God because he doesn't have an altar for this God and he's definitely not going to make the, the sacrifice to his God because that's not who Jonah is representing so it's not going to do you know he could have said well let me just go into my temple and we're going to pray to my God that maybe my God will be, beat up their God and, and be victorious on this you know and we laugh about that but that could have been his attitude on this he could have gone well you know we're just going to pray to our God and we're going to, we're going to make our you know, fasting and our sacrifices. We're going to all go to the temple of our God and we're going to pray to our God. And that's not what he decided to do. He decides to pray to the God of Jonah. Not because Jonah's telling them to repent from what we read. Now, maybe somewhere in Jonah's message he said repent. I don't know. But what is recorded is in 40 days you guys are going to be destroyed. Uh, And I think that was his message. He did not... He is one of the most reluctant preachers in the Bible. All right. He tried to run away from God. He gets there and we read the message that he gives. There's no love in this message. There's no care in this message. Uh, you know, it is you're going to be destroyed. And yet the king responds. Why? It has to be the Holy Spirit. It has to be the Holy Spirit that, respond, that made him respond, that touched his heart in a way that God that Jonah was not even starting to do. And again, I come back to the fact, if we step out and we do something for God, it's not our words that matter. It's the Holy Spirit's work on the person's heart. And we may think that we've been totally clumsy and messed it all up, but you know, I can't tell you how many testimonies I have heard from somebody say, well, that person tried to witness to me and you know they didn't really seem to do a good job, but... I couldn't shake what they did say. You know, the Holy Spirit comes in and twists those words in their mind, sticks that dagger in their heart of, the, of conviction, and then twists that dagger around a little bit to get them to, to try to respond. 
again, remember, it's not our words. Jesus told the disciples, do not plan what you're going to say when you're taken before the council. I will fill your mouth. And it is amazing when you stand up before people and you just say, God, I don't know what to say, and you let God fill your mouth, you're going to find yourself saying things that you never even knew that you knew. You're going to find yourself being eloquent. You're going to find yourself saying the right thing. Maybe things that might get you onto a, onto a cross or, or an electric chair or beheaded or whatnot. But your words are going to come across strong because the Holy Spirit will fill your mouth. Our job is pretty simple. We study. We study to show ourselves approved, a workman that needs not be ashamed. I study God's word. I study, I study science. I study history. I study all these things so that when I speak and the Holy Spirit takes over for my speech, he has something to draw upon. If you have an empty head, the Holy Spirit is going to... He, I'm not going to rule that he couldn't, but if you have a totally empty head, what are you going to even start saying? All right? You need to get into the Word of God. You need to memorize Scripture. You need to meditate upon the Word. And this is the important thing. I encourage us, we want to read through the Bible every year, but even more important, I want us meditating on what we read. Thinking about what it is that I am reading. And when a Christian or a Jew uses the word meditate, it is not what the Eastern mysticism and all the other religions, the other religions mean empty your brain and just sit there like a vegetable. You know, that is terrible because something will fill your brain. The demons will fill your brain with thoughts. You do not want to sit there like a vegetable with an empty brain. God says, meditate, dwell upon, mull over. You take his words and you think upon them and you, and you, you literally chew them up and you find out what they mean and you think about what they mean. When we think about meditation as a Christian, it is an active thought process. I am thinking hard on what God says and what he wants. I'm asking God to show me from his word what he wants. It's not sitting there, um, let me empty my brain so I don't even think. You know, that's not what he's asking. But literally, that is what those type of meditations try to get you to do. Empty your brain, don't think, so that you can be in tune with the spiritual world. The only problem, the, the spiritual world that you're being in tune with is a world that you don't want to be in tune with, because it's the demonic world that is going to be in tune with you. God says he speaks through his word. Meditate on his word. Fill your mind with his word. Wherewithal shall a young man keep his ways by taking heed to your word? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your own understanding and all your ways. Acknowledge him, which is think about what he's doing, and he shall direct your path. All through the Bible, we're told, think, meditate dwell on. Isaiah tells us, come now, speaking for God, come now and let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as wool. God says, come and reason. In most churches, they say, come and leave your brain at the door and we'll tell you what to think, or most religions. And if you ask why or how come, they go, well, you just have to just believe what we tell you. That is not what God says. God says, come, let me, let's reason together. Let me show you why what I'm saying is true. This is what I love about the Bible. 
I can bring my brain to the Bible. I can bring true science to the Bible. I can bring true philosophy to the Bible. I can bring true psychology to the Bible, and it matches the Bible all the way through. Now, when I bring all the false parts of those sciences in, they don't match the Bible. And that's where problems will, will occur. We, we have the sciences of the beginning times where nobody was. It's not a scientific thing to look at the beginning times because nobody was there other than God to record it. And if we're not going to accept God's word, nobody was there to, to record it. We can't repeat the experiment. How do you, ex you start an experiment with nothing and get everything? You know, how would you even set that experiment up? I'm going to make nothing. I can make a vacuum, which is technically nothing inside a test tube, but still there's a test tube involved. All right? Uh, so I can't even create nothing to begin my experiment of getting everything from nothing. You know, so that experiment can't work. Then I get an experiment where, okay, I, I start with, with chemicals and rocks, and I'm going to get life. Science tells us that life doesn't just jump into existence. Life comes from life, unless you're an evolutionist. And an evolutionist says that law of science has been broken one time, at least. Way back, millions of years ago, the law of science was broken. It forgot to exist back then. You know, uh, and then we have life becoming other life and, and switching, which we know nothing ever... You know, and it's kind of funny when you, talk, you point to somebody and you go to an evolutionist and says, give me one example of macroevolution where a species changes species. And they'll give you all the speci speciations and things changing within species. And no, I want you to tell me, when did a cat give birth to a dog? Well, they'll laugh. It never happens. But that's what you're saying. You know, and it's very funny because they'll laugh at you when you say, I want, to, I want you to give me an example of something giving birth to something that wasn't itself. I had somebody try to convince me that evolution was real because there's a salamander that if it's out of water too long, it evolves to be able to be on land. Its gills close. I said that's adapting. Adapting to, to your environment. environment. That is not evolution. Yeah. Not because if it goes back to the water, it goes back the other way. You know, so... And that's just it. They will point to all these things which are adapting to, this, to the environment, and that's not evolution. They like to call it microevolution, but it's not really evolution by their definition. And a series of microevolutions does not prove macroevolution. That something changes, you know, uh, this bird laid an egg and hatched a snake. You know, uh, and they'll laugh at you anytime you suggest anything like that, but that is exactly what they're teaching. Now, that somewhere along the line, something gave birth to something that wasn't itself. And they'll laugh at you. Well, you know, it's, 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 it, you know it happened in long, long periods of time. You know, that, that, that bird, be, you know, grew a longer, longer body, and then its beak turned into fangs, and then it lost its legs and started crawling. You know, you know all right, if that's true, where's the snake with legs? Where's the snake with a beak? You know, where's the, where's the bird with a long reptilian, reptilian body and no legs? You know, with a bird's head and bird's body and wings, you know. You know, we, there's just no evidence of any of these transitory ones, so you have to, and now they're making it so, well, you know, we don't have any missing links, so therefore it was quick 
quick and then we point out how dumb that statement is and they'll go and they'll laugh with you because they go no that could never happen and yet that's exactly what they say because there's no missing links they're now saying that things happen you know one time and you know you just gave birth to something different you know and what's even stupider about that is you'd have to have two of the same thing being born in the same area so that they can reproduce themselves so it can't happen just once it has to happen twice at the same place at the same time period so those things can now mate and, and, and reproduce. So all of these things, when you look at their false science that everybody believes because that's what they have been told in school and they don't analyze what they believe and they're made fun of if they do challenge it. Believe me, I know I was made fun of all through high school and most of college because I made I challenged all their preconceived ideas, uh, you know, and I like Ken Ham's statement, you know, you can ask them, you know, when they say millions of years ago this happened, then you can say, were you there? You know, were you there to see what you're saying happened? We have to take the only eyewitnesses account, and that's God. And God tells us some, a totally different story. He said, I created out of nothing. I created. And the world doesn't understand that. You know, because even if you think about it, by the way the world thinks, you've got to try to imagine nothing. No light, no energy, no, no atoms, nothing. You imagine nothing, and then all of a sudden, everything comes into existence. And that's exactly what, teach, what, what they teach. You started with nothing, and then everything. Now they'll go Big Bang, but it's still at some point you have to go back to a nothing because you don't have this oscillating universe because we don't see an oscillating universe. So we have all these problems with what they try to tell us because nobody was there and they're trying to explain what nobody was there for to be able to say this is what happened and then they call it science. This is why I always use the term evolution is philosophy. It is what man thinks happens. Now, I understand creationism is philosophy as well, but you know, the story that God gives us matches science a whole lot better than what evolution tells us. All right? We're told by the laws of thermodynamics and energy is neither destroyed nor created. That leaves us with a conclusion. It either had a supernatural beginning or it has always existed. Those are our two options. The first law of thermodynamics in, means that it, this world has always existed or it had a supernatural, something outside of nature started it. The second law of thermodynamics says that the world, that everything tends toward entropy, which is deadness or lack of motion. If the world has always existed and energy has always existed, our world would be dead. And you tell that to some people and they'll go, well, we're in the middle. Uh, sorry, if you go back forever, you're not in the middle of forever. You cannot be in the middle of forever because you keep going back and wherever you draw the line, you can go back further. So you cannot be in the middle of eternity. You can't be at either end of eternity because it always goes on. So the laws of thermodynamics tell us that there has to be a supernatural start. And that means 
Not necessarily our God, but our God gives us a very good answer of where everything starts. How did they get away with teaching that stuff in school? Because that's what I was taught, and honestly, it's... People don't challenge it. Scientists have determined that there is no God. God is thrown out of their equation. They are not willing to accept anything that proves God. And once you throw God out, you have to believe something. No matter how stupid the idea is, you have to believe in what that is. The evolutionist is on record somewhere in their life in their writing saying, we know evolution has its problems, but we cannot accept the alternative. Now, they don't name what the alternative is, but the alternative is that God created. All right. Why can't they accept that? For two reasons. Once you admit that there's a God that created everything, now you have to obey that God's rules. And so it is really a moral decision to not believe in God. Because once I accept that there's a God and God says don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't commit fornication, don't lie, don't steal, you know, don't, don't covet, I have to obey his rules as soon as I accept that there is a God. And so they cannot allow that there is a God. Even though they're, they're whole, everything they tell you is full of holes, violates every rule of science, uh, and you usually don't find out that it violates every rule of science. And it's a sad thing. You know, science is full of, scientists are it's just as vulnerable as anybody else and will twist things to match their pet, pet decisions. And it's been getting worse and worse with every generation. Because we are now open to the truth and we realize, and it's like I've shared with people, when we say the term prehistoric man, what do we think about? Even though we know there's no such thing as prehistoric man, what do we think about? Guy dragging his club and dragging his woman by her hair behind him. You know, ape man. Okay? But we know history all the way back to the beginning because Genesis gives it to us. There's no such thing as a prehistoric man. There's no prehistory, prehistory man because we know that the first man was Adam and Eve and they were very smart. They weren't, no. they weren't, the weren't, weren't knuckle, knuckle dragging things walking around with no knowledge. Adam, Adam named all the animals. By the time their sons are born, they're, they're already having a religious system of sacrifice and burnt sacrifices. All right? They're, they're, we don't have this prehistoric. And yet, even for us as Christians, we hear that term prehistoric and we are automatically geared into thinking something instead of thinking, what a bunch of stupidity you're asking me to think about. All right? We, add, we go right back to cavemen and all these things. And so this is how brainwashed we are even as Christians. All right? And we need to be able to, and this is why meditating on God's word is so important. I get into his word, I meditate upon his word, and I start accepting that what he says is true no matter what anybody else says. And, you know, we haven't had any great, science, great scientific, we've had technological advancements, but we haven't had any great scientific studies ever since the introduction of evolution. We have not had great scientific developments. We've learned to do some technological things with, with things, wherever technology has improved, but nothing new really is coming around that is provable. Even most of what's coming out of physics is not provable. You know, we've got string theory, multi-dimensions, and all these things that they're trying to prove by, by mathematics, and they can't really prove anything because you can't see it. But believe me, even, even though you can't see it, like know that it's there. What is string theory? <laughs> We're not going to get into okay, that at the yeah, moment. Yeah, 
Basically, it means that anything that can happen will happen in different universes. Okay. It's much more than that, but... That's um, all right, verse 8. The king says, Let every man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry unto, mightily unto God. Let them everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands. This king recognizes that violence is running and evil is running in his town. He's, he's helping to build it. I and mean, it's just part of their town. They're known for their evil. And he's saying, turn from all your wickedness. This king knows something. How he knows what he knows about this God, I don't know. You know, maybe he had some advisors that knew something more about the, the Hebrew God than he does, and they're advising him, and he probably does, because the advisor's job was to know everything there was to know about everybody, you know, and everything around you. So he probably had somebody who'd studied this, this God of the Jews and knew, knew things about it, might have had a Jewish slave advisor that was able to tell him about this God and how to worship this God. So it could be that he knew that God required fasting and repentance. And he says, we're going to try this. Repent, turn away from your evil. This is what our country needs if we're going to have revival. Repent and turn from your evil so that we can be forgiven. And his attitude was, if we do all of this, in verse 9, who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger and we perish not? He is totally prepared. He, for some reason, he believes that this God can destroy his town. Whatever reason he has for it, whatever the stories he knows, he's going, this God is fully capable of destroying our town. Maybe he knows the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, but he does know the story of Egypt. He does know the story of all these other places that God has given victory. And he says, we need to repent. We need to pray to this God, and maybe their God will relent and not destroy us. And verse 10, And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil ways, and God repented of the evil which he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Now, repent means to turn and change your mind and return, return the other way. Did God literally change his mind about the destruction of Nineveh? Not really. He postponed the destruction of Nineveh. All right? Okay, Nineveh, you've repented. I'm relenting of my current decision. And Nineveh is going to get another 148 years of existence before they're destroyed. They get 148 years because they repented before God. Now, they don't stay good. They don't stay completely repented. They, they go right back to being evil pretty quick. But God, when, he, when you turn to him, resets his mercy, resets his loving care on you, and gets you extra time to repent. And this will happen, you know, how many times does somebody turn to God, they're not saved, they just at the bottom of the barrel and they go, God, if you just get me out of this, I will, I will serve you. Now God knows that they're not going to serve them, but he might know that they might sometime in the future. So he gives them the answer to their prayer and gets them out of the trouble they're in. And what ends up happening when, you know, maybe you've done it yourself before you got saved. 
God, if you just get me out of this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to church and I'm going to serve you. I'll read my Bible. You know, I'll, become a, I'll become a priest. I'll become you know, a pastor. You, know, just, you just get me out of this and I'm going to be yours. And as soon as he gets you out of it, maybe you read your Bible for a day or two. Maybe you go to church once or twice. Usually you just say, wow, look, well, I'm no longer in trouble. God, you know, thank you. See you later. <laughs> you know, uh, you, what do you mean I promised you? No, nope, not me. I never promised you a thing. <laughs> okay. Uh, and we forget. Nineveh is going to forget their promise. It's not going to be long before they are the terror of, of, the, of the world again, causing problems, getting, living in their sin. But God does give them 148 years before they are destroyed by Babylon. All right? Uh, and they're going to be a troublemaking nation for, for Israel and for Judah. They're going to conquer the northern kingdom. Uh, and all of this is going to happen. They've already been harassing the northern kingdom, which is why Jonah didn't want to go, didn't want to go in there in the first place. And we're going to find out that Jonah was really happy about God forgiving these people. <laughs> no, we're going to find out that he was not happy at all. He was waiting for them to be destroyed. And we'll take that next week that, you know, when he looks at it. But, you know, as we looked into that one, how many times do we look at somebody's life and go, God, why did you give them grace? Especially if they're making our life miserable because we're a Christian and God gives them grace and they go right back to making our life miserable because we're a Christian. And we're going, God, why, why would you have given them Why did you let them you know, repent? Why did you not bring their judgment upon them? David asked that so many times. Why do the heathen rage and you don't do anything about it, God? They're, they're against you, God, and, you're, and they're attacking us and you aren't doing a thing about it. It's a question that is, goes for Christians and, and for people all the time. God, how can you let these people get away with all that they're getting away with? But you know what? We have to look at it in the long haul. God gives people enough rope to hang themselves on their own. He gives them grace after grace after grace. He gives them message after message after message. And the hope is that at some point that they will repent. And you know, oftentimes they do. Oftentimes they do, and they'll be like Paul, a Saul of Tarsus, having killed hundreds of Christians and arrested them, and he was sorrowful for what he did the rest of his life because he knew how much devastation he had done to the church, but God still used him in spite of all that he had done wrong. And God, all through the scripture, shows us that it doesn't matter what we do. When we turn to him, he will make a new life in us and use whatever life is left for us. And this is the beauty of it. He says, I will restore the years that the canker worms have, have destroyed. I will restore what the, what the locusts have consumed. What that verse means is, no matter how bad your life was, no matter however bad you messed it up and screwed it up, God can still use you and will restore it. People go, well, you know, I really messed up my family. They, they didn't know me, and I led them down the wrong path. And God says, I can still reach them. You may be the tool that reaches them by your changed life. You never know. And we see it, we see it a lot. A lot of people see it very quickly. Some people see it very slowly. Some people might not see it until after they pass away. But God will get hold of and try to get hold of that family member. Now, he's not going to make them follow him. 
But, you know, when people stand at the white throne judgment before God, they are without excuse. God will show them every time that they rejected him. Every time. Whether it was a stumbling, bumbling attempt to show him to somebody or, or, or a great oracle orator that, that gave them that story or God just showing them his power in what, what he did for them, he's going to say, here, 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 here. When people are cast into hell, they're going to know that they're getting what they deserved and what they asked for by rejecting God. As nobody's going to go to hell wondering why I went there. Now, they may not be happy. They're not going to be happy with that, but they're not, going to be, they're not going to be wondering why I'm here. They're going to know. And that is going to be with them for eternity. As they are burning in hell for eternity, dying of thirst and they can't die, they're going to remember every time they rejected God, which will add to their torment. You know, it, it's not something that is going to be, well, gee, God, what am I doing here? You know, they're going to know. They're going to know why they're there. Just as we're going to know that we, we're in heaven because we accepted the righteousness of Christ. And we're going to know that it was nothing that I did because we're going to see I'm in the righteousness of Christ and that's all that matters. My righteousness is filthy rags. If I, if I had to stand in my righteousness, I'd be over there on the white throne judgment being judged for my good, good deeds which aren't enough. And this is the thing that happens. Religion is built around doing good deeds and trying to please God. Christianity is a relationship of God by grace that brings us before God by his loving kindness and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is the beauty of Christianity. You know, people and I, you know, if I looked at my life, I'd go, man, I don't, deserve, I don't deserve heaven. And people look at me and say, well, you deserve heaven. No, I don't deserve heaven. If you really knew me, you would know that I don't deserve heaven. I may look like it to you because I don't drink, I don't do drugs, I don't, I don't sleep around, and I don't do all these other things, but I still have major problems in my life that deserve punishment. You know, uh, wrote in the bulletin, the, the number one commandment that every single person breaks, even if they can obey nine of the other commandments, is you shall not covet. Covet is the catch-all. All right? Okay, God, I've never murdered anybody. I've never committed adultery. Somehow I managed to not lust after anybody, which is coveting. Uh, I haven't stolen from anybody. Uh, I haven't lied. How many times do you want something that belongs to somebody else? Or want something that you don't have? That's coveting. We are all guilty of coveting. We're born coveting. I want, I want my bottle and I want it now. I want, clay, I want a dry diaper and I want it now. You know, we're not that cognizant of it, but we are very demanding even as infants, which shows our selfish, sinful nature even from birth. Now, I don't think God judges that baby for their nature because they haven't had a cognizant opportunity to understand him. But I'm not going to go to where the Jews go that you're not liable, liable for your sin until 12 years old or, you're, or the Catholic one, you're not liable until you're 10 years old. You're liable for your sin a lot earlier than that. There comes that point when you know that you know that you're doing wrong. Now, I happen to know that kids, even at a year old or so, know that they're doing wrong. You tell that child no, and you'll watch them looking at you to see if you're looking as they reach out for what you just told them no. 
All right. Now, I don't know that they're old enough to make a decision for God at that time and be accountable. I don't know where that happens. I know it's not as old as 10 or 12 years old. And for some, it might be as early as two or three years old. That they know that they deserve punishment. All right. Uh, and I don't know what it is. There's only one verse in the Bible that talks about infants going to heaven, and that is when David says when Bathsheba's son died, first son died out of their, out of their uh, adulterous affair, he told, his, told his workers, he goes, he can't come to me, I must go to him. All right? Uh, it's the only verse that talks about a child, a young, young child automatically going to heaven. And we don't know if that's David's desire or if it is him speaking authoritative for God. And you don't want to make a doctrine on one verse. Now, I do believe that God is just enough that a child who cannot make a decision, never, you know, never recognize their sin, is probably not going to go to hell. But we're also born sinners. We are born with the sin nature and born sinners. Where that sin nature is punished, I don't know. It could very well be from the moment of conception, but I don't, I don't want to go that far. Because that, that really hurts the child, children that have been aborted. They had no opportunity to ever do anything good or bad. So I do believe that they would be in heaven. That child under a year old who doesn't have an ability to speak and cognizantly think probably would go to heaven. Because God is just. And I can only prove it by one Bible verse. <laughs> and I don't want to make a doctrine on one Bible verse. But I do believe that God is just enough to say this child did not could not make a decision because he, he is just and holy but that holiness could say they're guilty you know and I don't know and I don't want to dis, you know disturb I would never tell a mother who's hoping that you know their child is in heaven and well no you can't count on that because I do believe that God is merciful and gracious so that child that's aborted that child never even had an opportunity to make a decision for God I believe that they would be in heaven all right? That young child who cannot, cannot make a decision probably is in heaven because of the, the justice, you know, the, the mercy of God saying they could not. It doesn't, you know, it's not there. Now, can't make that a definitive, but I do believe it. Yeah, it's a big question mark. It's a big question mark. You know, and it's a hard question mark if you've ever lost a child. Where is that child? And it really depends on how old that child was when you lost him or her. If they were just a little, little, little guy that could, did not, didn't know any better, I imagine they probably went to heaven because not, they weren't able to make a decision. But I do believe that able to make a decision is long before most religions want to say it because most every child I've met at three and four years old know that they're, know that they're a sinner and can make the exception that they need, that they need somebody to pay for it. You know, so it's hard. It's hard to make that, that, in, that emphasis. Jonah goes to this town, and they repent. And God says, all right, I'm not going to destroy this city. I'm going to give them another hundred. Now, he didn't tell them, but we, we know from history, he gives them another 148 years. Oh, for Hezekiah, who got 15 more years of, of life, and, and Manasseh was born during that 15 years. Well... It's kind of the same thing here. Nineveh is going to be destroyed at the height of their power after they have really made life miserable for the Jewish people. And this is just it. God always doesn't do what we think is good. 
Now, we would have agreed with, with Jonah. God, destroy, this, destroy these people before they do any more damage to, my, to our people. They don't know that, that Babylon is sitting on the, on the, uh, uh, on the outside getting, who's going to come in and destroy them as well. So they don't see Babylon. Babylon's not a big power at this point. They just say, hey, God, destroy this power. Get rid of it. We need to be very careful what we pray for because sometimes if God gives us what we pray for, something worse is coming down the road. Uh, you know, and I, it's an old country song, and I don't quote him very often, but I you know, can't remember who sang it, but he says, thank God for unanswered prayers. Garth Brooks. Yeah. And it's a pretty silly song overall, but it is very clear. But it's a very poignant song. You know, wow, you know, I wanted to marry this person, and you didn't give it to me. Now look at this person. You know, I, didn't, I really didn't want this person. You know, how many times has God not answered a prayer? And, and if you get back far enough, you look at it and go, wow, God, I am so glad you didn't answer that prayer. The unfortunate thing is sometimes he answers those prayers that we wish that he had not answered. All right. So we do, we really do want to get into the habit of God, let your will be done in, your, in our prayers and mean it. And, and watch, because sometimes God's will is not what we would choose. You know, this is why I grab hold of Romans 8.28, for all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, is God knows what he's doing even when I don't see how it can be for good. He knows that there's a good plan. And we need to always remember the statement, uh, God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. And we want to remember that. When it seems like everything's going wrong in our life, we need to remember God has a plan, and it is good, because he is good. We may not see how his plan can be good. We may not understand how it can be good. And we're not going to go into the long story. There's all kinds of places where God has been good in somebody's life when nobody would understand how in the world can this be good? You know, uh, somebody like Johnny Erickson Tata who broke her neck at age 17 years old and has been a quadriplegic for ever since. What does she do? She starts a ministry to other, other people that need wheelchairs and is well known around the world as a person who is an advocate for the, the physically disabled. And she has made a big ministry out of it. Would she have started that ministry if she wasn't in a wheelchair? Probably not. All right? Uh, so we look at that and say, now she'll tell you that she understands that good things came out of it. She still wishes that it hadn't happened and that she didn't, didn't have to be in a wheelchair, but she also understands, because she says it on her shows a lot, it was for good and these things have happened. She goes, I still wish that I could walk. I still wish I could run. I still wish I was athletic. But she understands that God had a plan. And she's really looking forward to heaven when she can run and get out, no longer be in a wheelchair. So what has God got in store for us? When we think that everything's falling apart, trust in God's good plan. Even though it may not make sense, even, may, even though it's not what we would choose, even when we see the good, it may not be what we would have chosen. But God has a plan, and it is a good one. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you love us. Lord, help us to open our mouths and share. Help us to see that you have a good plan even when we don't accept, understand or even want to accept it. Teach us to be able to share your message with people in a loving way. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? 
Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.